Uh, good evening. Thanks for joining us um, on a uh, Friday, at least those of us who are physically here in Sydney. I know we have people online who may be anywhere um, and maybe at any, any time where they are. Uh, I'm Mike Green, the CEO of the U.S. Studies Center. I'm joined by Bonnie Glazer of the German Marshall Fund, who I'm, I will introduce in a minute. But first, I have to do something, Bonnie, which we did not do at CSIS, um, which I'm sure you um, have uh, heard in Australia before. It's a tradition we probably should have in the United States. Um, and that's the acknowledgement of country. I want to uh, acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. Um, the University of Sydney, where we are now, sits on the Gadigal people's land of the Eora Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Um, we are here to talk about um, Taiwan, uh, cross-straits relations, the prospects for war and peace, and other weighty subjects with one of the world's preeminent experts on all of the above, uh, Bonnie Glazer. Uh, Bonnie is director of the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund in Washington, DC in the United States. She was previously senior advisor for Asia and director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I shouldn't have to read this because we worked together there. Uh, I was the senior vice president for Asia. Um, uh, Bonnie is um, also a non-resident fellow with the Lowy Institute uh, in town and a senior associate with the Pacific Forum in Hawaii. Um, for more than three decades, um, Bonnie has been uh, working on the intersection of Asia Pacific geopolitics and US policy. Um, she has advised the Pentagon. In fact, we probably met first when I was in the Pentagon, which was, 30 years ago about, um, and uh, has uh, been sought after as an expert on East Asian security, uh, Chinese uh, uh, security policy, US-China relations, Taiwan. Um, we uh, co-chaired with Richard um, um, Bush of the Brookings Institution, a Taiwan policy task force. Was that last year? Uh, October, 2020 was 2020. when we issued and With COVID, everything's a bit yes. of a blur, yeah. which I would, uh, uh, I, Recommend you look at it. I think it still holds up pretty well yes. two years later. Um, and it was the first, I think, real kind of bipartisan non-government uh, look at Taiwan and what Taiwan meant for US interests and what our options were in the context of US commitments in the Western Pacific, US-China relations, technology, trade, and, and national security. So for further reading, reading, you can go on the CSIS website where we both used to work in and look at the China Power Project Taiwan Task Force. Um, Bonnie, I want to... Um, uh, we'll have a bit of a dialogue. I think that's 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 always more dynamic, and then we'll open it up for questions um, from everyone in the room. Um, but let's start with the immediate. Um, uh, President Biden and uh, Xi Jinping just met. Mm -hmm. um, by all accounts, it was a uh, candid and constructive um, a discussion. But of course, that's what I used to say when I was in the White House. Every time the American and Chinese <laughs> leaders met, it was a candid and constructive. Discussion, so what, what's your take? What really happened? Have we turned the corner on a um, geopolitically tense US-China relationship or put a floor under it? How would you characterize what just happened? Well, as you know, Mike, and thank you so yes. much for having me. I should start there, and it's great to see you again here in uh, Sydney. Uh, as you know, the Biden administration has been trying for a year and a half to engage uh, China, uh, essentially to manage competition, not let it spiral out of control, uh, open a dialogue on risk reduction measures, um, uh, talk about, as they say, guardrails, and they have not gotten a positive response from, from China. And so the question is, is this a turning or, or an inflection point in the relationship? 
And why did Xi Jinping respond more positively than in the past? Is it because of economic problems in China that he wants to stabilize the situation? For me, this is a question mark. Um, I think that um, it is likely a tactical adjustment in China's approach. I don't think that it is really fundamental. Um, and China still has left in place the restrictions that it imposed after Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, with the exception of the climate change dialogue that has resumed. But the mill-mill dialogue, we don't know if that is going to resume. There are some special problems there. Uh, and I think that uh, there is a possibility that uh, with Tony Blinken going there in January, that there could be some sort of small progress in terms of establishing some ongoing dialogues. But for me, the jury is still out. And one of the points that I would underscore is that uh, the Chinese side, as usual, very much wanted to talk about establishing principles to guide the relationship going forward, and apparently did present to the US side what some their preferred principles would be. And the US side said, well, we will talk going forward about maybe agreeing on shared principles. Um, I hope this isn't a precondition for cooperation on other issues. Um, and we don't know whether China really is interested in uh, resuming cooperation on some of these other areas of uh, that relate to global challenges. There had been some progress made in the, apparently in the global health area. Um, North Korea was raised, but apparently the Chinese did not want to put that on the agenda of cooperation, quite different than when you were at the White House, of course, uh, but things have changed on that score. I think our interests are not as maybe even overlapping as they were then, uh, but maybe there will be some cooperation that takes place. So I think that there are, because of uh, perhaps both Xi Jinping and, uh, and uh, Joe Biden's um, uh, priorities that going forward may be more domestic um, and you know presidential campaigns going to get started pretty much soon in the United States that they both have an interest perhaps in introducing maybe a little bit more stability in this relationship than in the past but I'm personally skeptical that we will see much improvement because the structural nature of the competition is still there. Prime Minister Albanese also had a bilateral relationship. Yes. You've been here for a bit. What's your take on that? Similar, similar kind of story. Well, so also that's also similar to the engagement that I think Xi Jinping had with uh, with the European leaders. That uh, there there is an interest, maybe in improving relations on on China's terms for Australia. <laughs> um, I don't know whether they are going to be ready to ease the you know the economic coercion against Australia, um, and I think that they have some preconditions with. Uh, Europe as well. Uh, I think they're telling all U.S. allies you shouldn't be working with the United States in these these small circles. This is particularly intended for Australia, Japan, and India. Um, it's they perceive this to be anti-China coalitions, and they want to drive wedges in our in our alliances. Absolutely, uh, but I do think that Xi Jinping perhaps wants to ease some of the pressure that is coming from uh, alliances and from the United States. But I again, I don't think we're going to see a fundamental shift in Chinese foreign policy. In his in Xi Jinping's meetings with uh, with leaders from you know the global south, uh, he's talking quite a bit about these new initiatives, the global development initiative, the global security initiative. These are still part of Xi Jinping's attempt to lead global governance reform. This is 
been really important for Xi Jinping since 2018. And uh, I think that that goes to the issue of whose norms and values are going to underpin the international order going forward. Uh, the fundamental framing for the Biden administration and before that, the Trump administration, but also the Xi Jinping's fundamental framing relationship is competition. And that doesn't change with this, with this summit at all, does it? Yeah. Um, but maybe a little bit more of a floor under the relationship, which important constituencies needed to see. Um, I don't know if you saw the foreign affairs piece I did. But I liked it. Well, if you look at Australia, Japan, Korea, Europe, Canada, um, pretty tough on China, but with um, with a stated goal of working towards a productive relationship. What the U.S. Off is offering is avoiding war, right? Managing competition, not bending back to a productive uh, relationship. And the Chinese side, um, uh, you know, has has said if you want to cooperate on a global uh, areas like uh, climate change, then you need to change what you do on Taiwan and other issues that, of course, the U.S. isn't going to change. So it's not the most productive framing of a dialogue. And the fact that they actually had uh, candid and apparently constructive exchanges, I guess, is a step forward. It doesn't fundamentally change, uh, you're telling me, what we are going to see in U.S.-China relations, or for that matter, probably uh, Australia-China relations. What I found really interesting, and we'll get into Taiwan more, I, I'm sure, uh, was President Biden's um, attempt, partly on Taiwan, but also on other issues, to reassure China more. Yeah. So even in the past, uh, the president has made these statements, which the Chinese refer to as something like, you know, the, the five pledges, or um, four no's and one miss. Um, and this time he added more, not only repeated those, but also said, we don't want a Cold War. We don't want decoupling. Um, and instead of just saying we don't support Taiwan independence, he said we don't support one China, one Taiwan, or two Chinas. And that's something that hasn't been said by President Biden before. Um, and so this attempt to go back to some of the, the foundational language that we have um, in the past historically on Taiwan. And so I think that, that Xi Jinping and the Chinese side appreciated this, but still ultimately they want to know whether the policies are going to change. And I doubt that the Biden administration's uh, fulsome support for Taiwan is going to change in the future. I mean, it, it, it is logical that the largest and second largest economies in the world and militaries in the world would talk to each other. Right. Pretty fundamental. And um, the fact that they have in person is in itself, I think, important. Um, and looking at the 20th Party Congress, as you know, um, strategic dialogue with Beijing is extremely difficult in the Xi Jinping era. You know, when I was in government, when Kurt Campbell and Hillary Clinton were in the Obama administration, there was strategic dialogue with Dai Bingo, who you knew could speak for the standing committee for the Bureau of Leadership. Much tougher now. You really have to go to Xi Jinping. And, and that's happened, right? So if nothing else, the, the establishment of that dialogue is, is, is stabilizing, even if the tone or um, strategic intentions don't change. And you're absolutely right that our allies really wanted that meeting to take place um, and partners in Southeast Asia. There's been a lot of concern about the competition intensifying and uncertainty about what the United States is really trying to achieve vis-a-vis -vis China 
um, and a sense, particularly with the new export controls on semiconductors, that maybe the United States really is trying to um, contain China's rise. Um, this is something China has accused us of doing for many, many years. Uh, but now there's really some evidence that at least in the area of technology that is connected to military developments, that the United States does want to slow down China's ability to catch up. Um, let's turn to Taiwan. Mm -hmm. um, you, you've heard, I've heard, the public has heard, um, uh, former four-star admirals, um, US, um, saying that not only is conflict possible over Taiwan, it's going to happen in the next five years. Um, well, how do you respond to that? How dangerous is it? Conflict is not inevitable. I think that the risk of conflict is growing. And it is driven by many factors. First of all, the fact that the Chinese have some advantages in um, conventional military capabilities. Many people believe that this is the dangerous decade where uh, the United States is vulnerable uh, to China's anti-access area denial capabilities. We may not have sufficient capability to come to Taiwan's defense. Um, and so the credibility of our of our threat to defend Taiwan, uh, it is, is lacking. And perhaps people say next decade, we will be applying new kinds of technology. We may have long range fires from uh, maybe uh, laser capabilities that we don't have today. Uh, and so some people believe that there is an incentive then for China to act while it has an advantage. My own view is that, um, there are many factors that are probably restraining Xi Jinping. And I think it was very important that our, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, General Milley, said the other day that Xi Jinping likely knows that it would be very costly <laughs> to act against uh, Taiwan. So the, the real question is, what is his cost-benefit calculus? And I think that Xi Jinping, even though he may not be receiving all of the best information. And we, all, we always talk about the fact how he has a very small inner circle and maybe he's not getting good advice. But surely he knows that it would be very difficult for the PLA to achieve that mission of seizing and controlling Taiwan. And if the, if the PLA fails to do so, tries and attempts and fails, uh, that would weaken his position and uh, potentially even lead to the demise of the Chinese Communist Party. This is hugely risky. What does Ukraine do to that? You know, the Global Times helpfully says China's not Russia, would, would not make the same mistakes, would prevail. Um, but what happened with Putin's invasion of Ukraine, the, the, the willingness of the Ukrainian people to fight, the international solidarity behind Ukraine, all of that must cause some pause. Or not. Maybe maybe the lesson is um, strike hard and fast before the international community can organize. What do you think the Ukraine lesson has done to Beijing's calculations about the Taiwan problem? Well, certainly reinforced their existing plans, which I believe are to go hard and go fast, yeah. right? Um, uh, decapitate the leadership, um, cyber attacks, missile attacks, and count on the uh, international community, particularly the United States, you know, nobody being able to get there fast enough and the population in Taiwan may be surrendering. Um, I think that that's, that would be their, their game plan. Of course, they also have a peaceful 
uh, uh, strategy, which I think they have not yet given up on. And, and that's something else that we should talk about. Uh, you know, I don't think they've made a decision yet to use force. But the lessons from um, Ukraine, I think, um, have induced caution. Uh, I think they thought the Russian military was very, very capable. They don't know how capable their military is. They haven't been to war since 1979 with Vietnam, yeah. right? Russians have a lot more experience than China has. Chinese forces have to cross, you know, 100 miles of, of water. This is a very, very difficult operation. So I don't think that they have confidence. And if you read the writings of the PLA, they don't see themselves as being ready either. So we have to continue to raise the costs um, and remind Xi Jinping how, how costly this would be for him if he, if he acted. The the the, the, the cause of war for China, you said they haven't made a decision yet. Um, some people look at the um, narrative out of Beijing, the 20th Party Congress, and, and they see evidence that um, Xi Jinping wants unification on his watch. And, um, and, and, and we'll use force to do it. Um, another way to look at it is going back to the anti-secession law in 2005, he just doesn't want independence on his watch. You know, it's the difference between marry me or I'll kill you, or if you divorce me, I'll kill you. <laughs> um, if it's the latter, if it's what we saw in the anti-secession law in 2005, that China will use force to stop the jury or the fact of independence, we have time. Um, if it's if it's the other, if it's if it's marry me or I'll kill you, uh, Xi Jinping wants unification. We don't have time. That's the ten year window, also, right? So, where do you fall on that debate? The preventing independence versus forcing unification, or do we just not know and can't really call it? Well, first, I think that China has not um, changed its real red lines, which which I think are Taiwan de declaring independence and the United States supporting. Taiwan independence. I think they're both, they, they both are very important for China. But their strategy has moved towards trying to compel unification. And there's debates about whether there really is any timeline for unification. So 2049, and going back to the 19th Party Congress, 2017, Xi Jinping did say reunification is an inevitable requirement for national rejuvenation. This really isn't the first time that Chinese leaders have connected the notions of reunification being important for uh, the national rejuvenation. And every Chinese leader has said that is China's most important uh, objective. So I think Xi Jinping um, has introduced at times what I would call impatience, not urgency. And it goes back to 2013. He met with uh, the former Vice President Vincent Xiao from uh, Taiwan, um, and I think it was on the margins of an APEC meeting. This was 2013 when Ma Yingzhou was in power, and the relations across the strait were much better, of course, than they are today. And he said uh, to him something like, uh, uh, "You know, we shouldn't pass down these differences between the two sides of the strait from generation to generation." And he repeated that in January 2019 when he gave his only you know, Taiwan-focused speech. It's the only one he's ever given. But in my mind, um, this was not really intended at the time as like a threat. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so again, I would say at most, this is impatience, it's yeah. not urgency. So 2027, as Admiral David started, Davidson started to talk about when he testified before Congress in the spring of 2021, 
uh, was, a, 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 this is a timeline for PLA modernization. There are three target dates for, uh, for modernization. It's 27, 35, and 49. It is not. It has not been connected by the Chinese themselves to a unification with Taiwan. Just about building the military. It is right. It is a, exactly, yeah. and so I think it's been a little irresponsible the way people have talked about deadlines. An attack could take place tomorrow. Yes, we better get prepared, uh, and and Taiwan ought to be doing much more to get prepared than they're doing. That said, I don't think we should be. Uh, talking in this very alarming way about uh, inevitability yeah. of war. I, I've been, I've been, I'm, I agree with you on that. It is more dangerous, but it's not inevitable. And it's dangerous to say it is. Um, and um, uh, that said, you hear it a lot uh, from people in uniform. And I think because they're looking at the modernization plan of the PLA, they're looking at how difficult it is to execute our traditional plans, given the changing you know, military balance across the strait. But people who are not in uniform will often say, as you said, this is a huge existential risk for Xi Jinping. So it sounds like you lean more on the side of um, preventing independence rather than forcing unification, but you're not solidly on that side because it sounds like you're saying we don't know for sure. Well, it, it, this goes back to this sort of the gray zone threat. So what really is the strategy? It, it, it is using more, um, military and diplomatic, some even economic coercion, cyber disinformation, all of this, to really try and convince the people of Taiwan that they should have confidence in their government and that their future is better if they join the mainland in some way, um, and to get them essentially to induce a sense of psychological despair um, So do you in see the, 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 the much more, you know, belligerent posture of the PLA, bomber flights, circumnavigation of Taiwan, just, you know, uh, do you see that as more um, almost psychological pressure rather than military preparations, keeping the pressure on the people of Taiwan? Well, it's both. There's no doubt it's also military preparations. But I, I it, the display of force after Nancy Pelosi's visit, in my view, was an attempt to signal to the United States that China is serious about its red lines. And we keep moving closer and closer to them. Um, and, and, and this goes to some of the things that I've written about. It was an article I published recently with several other people about, um, it's essentially about um, Schelling's thesis of how you have to, de deterrence is, requires credible threats and credible assurance. And even though President Biden has said that he doesn't support Taiwan independence, he's also said, We'll leave it up to Taiwan to decide, right? If they want to go independent, why not? Um, and he has said other things, of course, that are um, very contradictory. And some of our actions, I think, have also um, been somewhat, um, have led China to, they, they use the words where our one China policy is hollowing out. Yeah. Well, let's talk about, so we spent a little time on okay. Xi Jinping's intentions, his red lines. Let's talk about the U.S. policy. Um, Before you do, let me just add one sentence about the 20th Party Congress, because I really just didn't answer that. I see nothing in the political report in the 20th Party Congress that would lead me to conclude that there is greater urgency on, on the part of Xi Jinping. And I was looking for it. I expected that we would see something, and, and I did not. And, and I think that that's, that was deliberate. So 
um, it's very, very consistent set of policies that they are pursuing. In so, so is the U.S. consistent? Um, Joe Biden has said four times, you know, he would, he would defend Taiwan, basically. And, and some people say he's getting rid of the so-called strategic ambiguity where the U.S. does not say, so strategic ambiguity is the U.S. does not say what it would do. Because essentially, as you have written, um, it doesn't want to give a green light to Taiwan for independence. It doesn't want to commit itself uh, to Taiwan because we don't have a security treaty with Taiwan like we do with Japan, Korea. Um, but we always have tactical priority. We'll do what we have to do. And um, uh, so four times, is that a malapropism? Is that a mistake? Or is there intent in what Joe Biden is signaling um, with his uh, language about, about, you know, much more robust language than we've seen? Mm -hmm. The last time we saw this was when, when I was working for President Bush, and he said in 2001, in a TV interview, if Taiwan was attacked, we would rise up and defend them. Like none of us told him to say that. Um, and then afterwards, he said, well, I'm kind of glad I did. And he never said it again, but he sort of showed resolve. You know, it, presidents get to say what they want to say. Believe me, I've Absolutely. worked for them. You, you can't always script them. Um, imagine working for Donald Trump. You can't always, you can't always script them. Um, and yet there is... Some intent here. There is some signaling. What, what, what's what's your read on it? Are we changing strategic priorities? Um, well, we're definitely not uh, yeah. deliberately changing strategic ambiguity, which I I think would be a mistake. So what I think is going on here is that you know when Joe Biden was in the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, when they were creating the Taiwan Relations Act, there was 79. yes he has there was a narrative. Um, and you can go back and look at the documents. You can see that some of the senators are, are quoted in the discussion that they had uh, who portrayed the Taiwan Relations Act as another way to defend Taiwan because we were abrogating the mutual defense treaty that we'd had with Taiwan since 1954. So I think that it was pitched to some of the senators that way, that the Taiwan Relations Act was essentially the way we would defend Taiwan going forward. It was like a, just a replacement for the treaty. So I think in President Biden's mind, he, he's perfectly honest when he says, we're not changing policy. This has been our longstanding policy. Yeah. We have always said we have a commitment to Taiwan's defense. So that's how you understand the logic of what President Biden is doing. Yeah. He's He's not trying to change policy. He thinks he's just, uh, he's being consistent with all of the other presidents since 1979. That's that's interesting. I mean, he has a long history with this issue, a very long history with this issue. Uh, I, I wonder whether part of it also um, is, you know, the Taiwan Relations Act says an attack on Taiwan would be a great threat to our interests, US interests in the Western Pacific. And after Nancy Pelosi's visit, visit the PLA's missile shots also went into Japan's easy. Yes. I mean, there's and an attack on Japan yep. would have. Existential. Uh, it, yes. For us, it'd be, all, it'd be existential, but we have a treaty commitment, yep. unlike Taiwan. And um, I wonder if what's going on in the White House and President Biden's mind is there's no longer a Taiwan center that does not involve Japan. And we'll get to Australia in a minute, because I personally don't think there's one that doesn't involve Australia um, from China's perspective. Um, do you think that might be it as well? That that piece of the Taiwan Relations Act is very clear, um, and and the and the nature of the Chinese military exercises, and you've seen the 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 social media posts from the PLA when they blow up targets in Inner Mongolia with mm -hmm. 
missiles that are shaped exactly like Japanese bases and American bases in Japan. Maybe that's what this is about as well. It's, it's, it's no longer the discrete Taiwan cross-straits thing. It's now, you know, any conflict is likely a conflict that involves the whole first island chain of allies. That's probably true as well. Um, I think also in the president's mind is just the Republicans who want to portray him and his administration as being soft on China. And this administration, more than any other, Mike, is like always looking over its shoulder yeah. at the opposition and not yeah, wanting never, to appear never. soft on China. No, yeah. you never did that. <laughs> you know that, I mean, look, in uh, the most bipartisan issues you know in Washington is Asia policy. Yeah. Uh, and especially alliances. And the number one issue that Republicans in foreign policy would like to beat up the president is also China policy. So it may be that one reason the administration has not done what Japan and Australia and Korea and Canada have done, saying we want to move towards a productive relationship, one reason may be politics. That it's, it's hard to do that. That, that, that. that could also explain it. So, like all things in international relations, it's a complicated mix of personalities, domestic politics, yes. international law. And um, and as clear as mud, a little clearer. <laughs> thanks, thanks to you, Bonnie. A little clearer. Um, the center of gravity in this whole discussion is Taiwan. And you go to Taiwan a lot. You know, Tsai Ing-wen. I was last there in March. I think you've been more recently. I am going next week. You're going next week. Yes. So preview for us what you're going to hear. <laughs> um, you know, that's the most critical variable in a way. Um, if Taiwan declares independence, we have a problem. If Taiwan buckles under its own coercion, we have a problem. Um, do we have a problem? What, what do you, where do you think where do you think Taiwan is in this whole equation? Well, one of the things that um, I've heard that President Tsai has been telling some Americans who are visiting recently um, is that she is concerned that this alarmist language about um, the pending conflict in the Taiwan Strait that it is reducing uh, the uh, commitment of businessmen. They're now hedging more. Uh, investors are reconsidering whether they should be investing in Taiwan. And this could be very damaging to Taiwan's economy. So on the one hand, the war in Ukraine, the concern about war in the Taiwan Strait has increased the interest of the international community and led to some positive things like Japan, South Korea, the EU signing um, uh, statements saying, we're committed to the preservation of peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. But on the other hand, if it goes too far, then um, there's concern about companies that think that maybe Beijing will force them to choose between doing business with Taiwan or, or with China. And so she's very concerned about this. Um, and I think she also is uh, worried about um, the, how we strike, how they strike the balance between countering the gray zone threats and continue to build the capabilities to prevent the PLA invasion. And the U.S. seems far more focused on the latter than Taiwan is, because we have this sense that the threat is more urgent than I think they do. Yeah. I saw her in March. I think she 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 drew some lessons. She her, her view is exactly what you described, which was also Zelensky's view before mm. Russia attacked. Yeah, <laughs> don't don't upset the market. Uh, um, not to be pessimistic. Um, she, she, I, I will say she did internalize Zelensky's lesson. Don't be the provocateur, yes. be the victim, which means don't declare independence, don't cause trouble. Um, asymmetrical capabilities, especially missiles. Um, her military, as you know, is a little slower to move away from submarines and 
exciting things like fighter jets to small portable missiles and things like that. Um, but pretty steady, I thought. Um, what's the scenario? What's the scenario if, if there is um, a crisis? Is it is it the bolt out of the blue decapitation attack? Is it more likely to be? You also mentioned cyber gray zone pressure. What what prediction is difficult, as Yogi Berra liked to say, especially about the future. <laughs> but what's your um, what's your what what worries you? Like what headline do you think we're most likely to see if there is a problem? I'll start by saying what I'm not worried about. I just don't think the Chinese are going to go seize um, Jean Mun and Mazu. That's just never seemed very seemed very likely to me. They've had the capability to do that for some time. These are the two small islands. Uh, the two small islands just, that are close off to right off of mainland China. Um, I just I don't think that that's the most likely scenario. I think it would make Taiwan um, feel that they need to do more to defend themselves. It would become really an existential, right? Uh, and then uh, China would not have moved an inch toward its real goal of peaceful unification. So ultimately, I think that would be counterproductive. And that might even include a scenario of, you know, Trotis um, uh, Islands as well, um, or Penghu for that matter. So I, again, I, for similar reasons, I don't think a blockade is really likely because that's a slow squeeze. You know, Taiwan has enough um, a strategic petroleum reserve for 11 days. That's it. And they, I don't know how much food they have stockpiled. And they're working now on munitions stockpiling, but it's not like resupplying Ukraine over the Polish border. Uh, we're not going to be able to get anything to Taiwan. So I think that just gives the U.S. time to intervene. It mobilizes the international community. I don't think that serves their interest. So I think if they decide to go to war, it's it's really going fast to be all of it, yeah. fast, absolutely worst case. Though I don't know if you saw the reporting. Um, there was recently a um, a study that was done by the Rhodium Group to try and estimate what the global cost, the cost would be of the global economy if China uses force against Taiwan. And they deliberately chose a very low-end scenario. So no use of force, just a blockade. And uh, an annualized number that they came up with was $2.5 trillion for the global economy. So the message was, this is worse than Ukraine. Yeah. The Rhodium Group is run by our friend Dan Rosen, who's um, uh, Clinton White House uh, alum, uh, economics expert. And most of their work uh, historically has been all the opportunities to make money in China <laughs> and the opportunities for Chinese investment in the US. But I've noticed the last two years, most of the work is about the consequences of war and conflict and decoupling. Which is That's where a, the demand is, I'm yes, afraid. It's a bit of an indicator, not just what Washington thinks, but what New York and, and yeah. C-suites and executives yeah. are starting to worry about. What, what, what can we do to prevent this? What, 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 what can, I mean, I don't know if Xi Jinping listens to you. I know Washington often does. What can, what can be done to bend this in a safer direction? Well, while we're developing military capabilities, which is really one of the most important things, I mean, we really need to have a strategy of denial, but I mean, we just don't have the capability yet. Um, so I hope, want to explain that because- um, Deny the the um, the ability of, of China to ever take Taiwan. So, we, they so that they can't the get trips across the strait. Right, right. I mean, and but we are very far from having that. We may never get that. And if we don't, then at least, and in the interim, we have to raise the costs 
So Xi Jinping gets up every day and says, today is not the day I'm going to move against Taiwan. Uh, and one of the things the Biden administration has done very well is to engage the international community in this effort. Um, and it began with um, the rhetoric that I referred to earlier, and then it's more of actions. And I think Japan, the most important, as you know, um, and I think there's more contingency planning than we've ever seen. The discussions have advanced a great deal more. Um, you know, you, you would know better than I would what Japanese would really do in a crisis, but it's, it's just moved a, a long way. Um, uh, there, there's obviously um, a sense that if uh, China ever really took over Taiwan, um, it would, it's just too close to for Japan's interest, that the slots could be cut off. And it's um, the, the notion of the, the PLA actually on Taiwan, we're very concerned about now. I mean, having their uh, submarines, for example, um, to be forward deployed on Taiwan, they Taiwan. if they took yeah. Taiwan, would it's, be very it's, dangerous. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, Japan, 20 years ago, politicians, scholars would have said, you know, do we have an option? Can the option out? Can we be neutral? You don't get that. I think it's broadly understood that this is Japan's in this, and the, the PLA military exercises make it pretty clear that that's Beijing's view. So the other part of the conversation that's taking place now, which is in the aftermath of the of the um, uh, invasion by Russia of Ukraine, is what can we prepare in terms of sanctions that um, uh, the United States, our allies. What would agree to uh, to impose on on China if they attack Taiwan, and then to communicate that now as a deterrent, so that so that Xi Jinping would know how costly this would be. And you know, we look at the Russian example. You know, would we freeze their central bank reserves? You know, we, we know we're going to try to cut them off from SWIFT, but China's working very hard to develop alternatives to SWIFT anyway. Uh, but this is a conversation that has advanced with the Europeans. Um, I don't know if it's taking place with Australia, but I mean, one question is um, if uh, the if there really were an invasion, is Australia willing to signal that it might be um, willing to uh, stop exporting to China some of the capabilities, the the the, the commodities? Sorry, yeah. um, that China is very dependent on Australia. That's not before. a winning political line for any government in Canberra right now. <laughs> um, however, we did ask at the US Study Center, we did a survey um, in September of the American, Australian, Japanese public about a range of issues, trade, mm -hmm. um, uh, but including the Taiwan problem. And, and um, just to give you one uh, number, uh, we asked the question if the US decided it had to send force to defend Taiwan, should Australia join in? Um, Twenty-five percent of Australians said no. Forty-six uh, percent said yes. Um, now that I think that was surprising to some people. Yes. Um, but another question asked: uh, On balance, does China do more harm or good in the Pacific, in the Indo-Pacific? And Americans, Australians, Japanese, consistently. Um, Jared, tell me if I got it wrong. He designed the survey, but over fifty percent, and for several years now, consistently have said China does more um, harm. Is a word then good. So, um, you know, hypotheticals are never good politics, especially if you're saying, you know, would you cut off your exports? Not a winning thing. But I, I, I just sense there is a growing um, concern um, and 
anything and sense that this is dangerous. The previous defense minister, Peter Dutton, said, of course, Australia would go, but no one has said that since because it is a hard thing to say out loud. But you know, surveys aren't predictors, but you know, there's a sense that this is, is serious. Another thing that I think Australia could do, just while mm. giving recommendations, um, would be to um, resume the discussions with Taiwan on a um, trade agreement. Yeah. Um, that's something that has been, you know, on, on, on the shelf for quite some time. And the understanding that you know, China wanted, of course, was that, you know, you first sign in, uh, anybody that is going to have a trade agreement with Taiwan first had to sign one with China. And Australia did that. Um, the, the Europeans, I think, are not ready yet to, and there's been a push from the European Parliament to negotiate an investment treaty with Taiwan, but I think that the you know the EU is just not ready to go there. Yeah, I don't and see it yet in, here. in the US. Yeah, where where we've developed some an alternative, twenty first century initiative, but we're not doing trade agreements. We're just doing supply chains and. But it's you know, as much as we're doing with other with countries. Everyone. Actually, it's, it's, right. it's, yes. Yeah, and the logic of that is, of course, China would not like it, but the logic of it is. Um, it, 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 it gives um, encouragement to people in Taiwan about their economic future. Yes. Um, and it also gives um, uh, purchase, it gives presence. I mean, if you have that skin in the game, if, if, if US, Australia, Europe are developing these exactly. economic relations with Taipei, then Taipei is gonna listen more. And if we're worried that one of the causes of conflict would be something Taiwan does, you, you would want that kind of trust and, 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 and relationships not diplomatic relationships, but personal relationships and trust, uh, even if Beijing doesn't like it. Um, let's um, let's open up to questions from the audience. Um, we have a, a, a quite expert audience as I look around the room. Um, and we have microphones as well. I think getting, I surprised the staff. Uh, we'll start over <laughs> here on the right and work our way across. Thank you. Uh, so I was just thinking about the geography of Taiwan. It's either cities or mountains, and most military-aged males have some level of military training. Uh, so with that in mind, do you have an assessment on Taiwan's national will, like their will to fight? That's a really important question. And over the years, I think whenever new commanders would come in at Indo-Pacific Command, which of course used to be PACOM, um, they would all ask that question when they when they came in, what is uh, Taiwan's will to fight? And I'm interested not only in their will to fight, but how China perceives their will to fight, because we want China to think that Taiwan will defend itself. And President Tsai talks a great deal about the willingness to, to defend themselves. Um, I think you said a large number of, of the people have been trained. I mean, now conscription in Taiwan is now uh, down to four, four months of training. It's referred to as summer camp. Um, it's not terribly serious. Uh, you look at other countries that, that face uh, an existential uh, threat. South Korea would be one. Israel would be another. Um, and these are you know, countries that, that, that really have uh, just a outstanding training of their people and large numbers of reserves that have to uh, be called up, you know, a certain number of days every year to train. And, and Taiwan has now has a pilot program to strengthen their reserves, which is, I believe it's 12,000 people. Um, and they're 
a, a little bit more night training and live fire and training with the active duty military. But it's this started before the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So now they will decide whether they want to expand it to a larger number of people. But they've already said they can't expand it to the entire reserve force. They don't even have the capability. So in my view, it's just it's very small. Other countries, of course, have what we call like a total defense or territorial defense force. Um, and Taiwan has nothing like that. But there seems to be some interest in the public in learning how to fight. So we've seen these like civil society efforts. But in order to be effective, if you look at like Finland or Sweden and the Baltics, to be effective, they have to be connected to the militaries. Right? I mean, in Taiwan, you can't use a real gun to shoot. They're using air guns. You can't get guns in Taiwan. So the military has to be involved in, in the training efforts. And so I've been advocating this. I think that, you know, they have such close ties now with the Lithuanians. <laughs> I met with, the, with one of the Lithuanian officials the other day and said, please talk to Taiwan, explain to them why this is important for their security. Because as you say, it demonstrates the will to fight. But it's always impossible to know. The U.S. intelligence community, except for, I think, INR, um, uh, but the rest of the intelligence community predicted that Ukraine, the Ukrainian people- INR is the State Department's yes, right, intelligence. State, right. they, they, they famously dissent. Yes. Uh, with, <laughs> but they, uh, but they the apparently got it right. They got Iraq right. Yes. They got Ukraine wrong. Yes. Um, I saw polls uh, when I was there in March that showed over 50% of Taiwan. Taiwanese you know, citizens of the Republic of China said they would fight. There but are, polls are all over the place. There right? are lots of polls. Yeah. It depends, of course, who conducts them, how the questions are asked, the, and the answers are all over the place. And from what I have heard recently, they're having challenges with recruitment. So. Yes, ma'am. Can you wait for the mic? Uh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, I just want to explore that a little bit more. So what do the people of Taiwan Want. We've heard a lot about what the governments are doing, but what do the people in Taiwan want? Do they want a closer relationship with China? Do they want to maintain independence but have that close relationship? Because at the end of the day, China can take over Taiwan, but if, if they don't want that relationship, it's going to be very difficult to maintain it. People tend to forget that. I'm pulling out my, uh, my, polls, numbers. my polling numbers. Yeah. Um, just as you had your polling no, numbers, I have mine. And they're pretty consistent. Um, they're important. Uh, so today, nearly um, you, two thirds first, well, first talk, just talk about identity. Um, nearly two thirds of Taiwan citizens identify ex exclusively Taiwanese. So they're asked, are you Taiwanese? Are you Taiwanese and Chinese? Or are you exclusively Chinese? And, and that's up uh, from uh, at just 17.5% in 1992 when they started conducting these polls, and only 2.4% identify as exclusively Chinese. It's very small. And then on the question of do you want you know, unification now or in the future, independence now or in the future, or the status quo, it's now fewer than 7% of respondents that support unification either now or at any time in the future. And that's down from 20% in 1994. So it's really significant. And then around 30% say they favor independence now or in the future. And that's up from 11% in 1994. And then you have about 28.5% that favor maintaining the status quo indefinitely. 
Okay, I'm sorry for not reaching the mic. If you were Xi Jinping, um, you can talk, we can talk all we like about military action, but if you're not winning the hearts and minds of the people in Taiwan, you're creating a bigger problem for yourself. Should introduce you to Xi Jinping. <laughs> and you would think if you were trying to win hearts and minds, you wouldn't do what you did in Hong Kong. Uh, well, that's right. Yeah. Which, is, which I think is probably behind some of these numbers. And Tsai Ing-wen campaigned last time. Yes. And, and you know, arguably won because of, 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 of Hong Kong and showing the dangers of, uh, of being under Beijing's thumb, right? Unfortunately, though, one of the things we've learned from the white paper that China put out in mm -hmm. August on Taiwan um, is that they've drawn very different conclusions than we would like from Hong Kong. They've tried to apply some of their successes to Taiwan. So now they're talking about, for example, how they have to have patriots in charge in Taiwan, just as you know how they have patriots in charge in Hong Kong. So um, that unfortunately, the lessons have not been the ones that we would like them to learn. Can you, I'm sorry, we need to wait for the mic. We'll, we'll get this gentleman, then we'll get to you. Some commentators have said that the cost to China to initiate a conflict is underestimated and the cost to the West, uh, sorry, the cost to China is overestimated and the cost to the West is underestimated. And um, among the several reasons that they use to justify that view is that uh, China has virtually a monopoly on the manufacturing and some would even say technological infrastructure of the world. Um, and they, they draw the analogy that in the same way that Russia had withheld the energy reserves from Europe, specifically Germany, for example, that it would make that action of Russia look like a grain of sand in a beach. Uh, what is your view on that uh, sort of thinking? Well, China and Taiwan are extremely interdependent economically. China uh, relies on uh, semiconductors from Taiwan. 43% uh, of Taiwan's exports go to mainland China. Uh, the amount of investment is just huge in, in, in China. Uh, and the Rhodium Group uh, report that I mentioned earlier showed that the cost to mainland China of a blockade would be enormous because they couldn't just let ships through that are supplying China with goods. They would obviously have to block them all. So the only place that would suffer more than Taiwan would be China. So I'm not so sure that the cost is really overestimated. I think the economic cost to China of a blockade on Taiwan would be, would be just incredible, even before they use force. It, you know, the, um, I've heard those arguments as well. Um, uh, China's dependence on seaborne oil and gas imports is huge. They, they're the largest importer in the world. And that dependence on seaborne uh, is going up, not down. Um, so that would be a devastating for the Chinese economy. Um, dependence on semiconductors, uh, huge. But on the other hand, the West is also dependent on China's market. So it would be bad for everyone. Yes. But, but the argument that somehow it'd be easy for China or easier for China, I think, is probably not not quite right. Although people in the Global Times, writers there will certainly argue it. What, what, they, the Global Times. Yeah. what they're doing is drawing analogy between the effect that Russia has had 
on destabilizing the political situation in Europe with uh, people being unable to maintain their daily living in terms of energy costs, which has cost um, the strongest um, member of the EU, Germany, enormous political instability. They're, what they're saying is that that would make that look like nothing. Um, that's, and that's... They're, they're quite right as far as I understand, because um, the China does have now the monopoly on the global manufacturing inf infrastructure. I mean, you look at almost every country, there's hardly any manufacturing when you compare it to the manufacturing hubs of uh, China. Yeah. And, and China has the huge population, so they don't really need the external customers. They can power their economic engine with the simple fact that their population is so large, so the demand can be maintained for their goods within the country. Yeah, I, I personally, I don't buy that. The largest financer of, inf of infrastructure in the world is not China, it's Japan. And Sorry, could you repeat The that? largest provider of financial um, uh, loans and assistance for, it, for infrastructure is Japan. Uh, it's, it's Japan Bank for National Cooperation, not Belt and Road. And, and yes, China has a large internal population, but um, uh, it, is not a, it is not an autarkic, autarkic economy at all. It's highly, highly dependent on the world. And the world is highly dependent on China. Um, the interesting question is, you know, how do the Chinese people react? Um, when, because the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party is both economic growth and national, you know, rejuvenation and sovereignty. You know, in, in theory, China's growth could be consumer-driven, but it's not. It's export-driven. Um, it, bottom line is this: I think everyone can agree, and the Rhodium Group's numbers of three trillion show it. It'd be bad for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be bad. It would be bad for everyone. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. Last one quickly. Briefly. Yeah. Wait, we need for, the the, mic, wait for the mic. Thank you very much. Um, okay. Uh, two quick points. The, oh, come on. Come on. I traveled three hours to come here. You, you can't cut me off. Um, you can have two. Thank you. Um, from a historical point of view, the Chinese analyze things, whether it be the Qing Dynasty, the ROC, current Communist Party, and our friend Kevin Brad has written extensively on this. From their point of view, they look at, say, um, from the time of Qianlong right through to present, and they go, we controlled all kinds of areas, Mongolia, Xinjiang, Western regions, Tibet, Manchuria. And then in the 1940s, that crazy geographer who decided to create a nine-dash line whether it's an imperial government, ROC, or a northern warlord, or Mao Zedong, or his successor, they all see those boundaries as being part of a modern concept of China, not an imperial government, but a modern state. They then look at the 1940s, where the UN created the so-called world order. They weren't part of the club. So everyone established, and your Michael fully loves of the world, etc. They established a different set of rules. China wasn't invited into the rules. So, from their perspective, I believe they see themselves as being outside that rule set. And they see Taiwan as being part of the Qing Empire from the 1680s when they got rid of the last Ming loyalists. They took over Taiwan in 49 when, I beg your pardon, when they. Uh, 
they still see Taiwan as part of the legitimate boundaries of, of China. So is a question. And the in inheritors of that situation. So they see uh, the whole debate as being an interference on their legitimate claim to that territory. It's part of China. If, if, Even if, if you, you could argue, to respond to that, or, is, or yes, okay, all right. I'm still stuck on Michael Foley Love as much as I like him. That Michael Foley Love created the world order. <laughs> okay. Well, I was, well, was going to ask about that, but we'll, we'll talk I, about Michael's that later. A very smart guy. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, in other words, people talk about rule set that they don't see themselves as being included in. Right. No, that's the revisionist sort of um, yeah. It, it, which yeah, I don't agree with that point of view, but but so it strikes it, me that's how they operate. Right. I mean, I mean, part of this is revisionist history. You know, the uh, obviously um, there's parts of the international order that China was very much um, uh, participatory in. Take, for example, the um, uh, Convention on the Law of the Sea, where you know the Chinese were deeply involved in in the negotiations, um, and and they they wrote the rules. Um, they also are a signatory, um, and we are not. We are yes, not. We yeah. However, we observe it and they don't. So you take your choice. Um, <laughs> uh, but that, 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 is their, that is their narrative. Um, but the, the Chinese claim that they don't want to um, overhaul the international order. They say parts of it are unjust and unreasonable and they want to revise it in, in small ways to improve it. They don't accept the norms and the values that underpin that order. They don't accept the alliances, which we see as integral to the order, but they embrace the institutions and particularly the United Nations, right? I mean, this is where they have the most clout. And, and so, you know, I, I, I think that ultimately we have to be careful to not embrace their view of history. There's many different parts of the world that, you know, used to be countries that used to be part of other countries. So at what point do we say, um, you know, history started, but we should accept all of their claims from 5,000 years of history. What about the rest of the world's claims? So, I, I mean, this is, it's not very convincing to me. But my final point will be that uh, Xi Jinping made a point in his, where, where we started in his meeting with uh, President Biden, which he, he said many things about Taiwan, but this time he said something that was new. Um, not surprising, but it's an important statement. He said, Taiwan is the core of China's core interests. And so ultimately he is signaling this is something that if we have to, we will go to war uh, in order to prevent Taiwan from going independent. So this is our bottom line and we need the United States to not cross it. And so, I mean, he didn't say all of those words. He said, it's the core of the core. And so I think that the, the Chinese are trying to signal the US that we both have to manage this situation better. Sure, the Chinese would like us to not interfere and solve it themselves. That's not going to happen. The United States has deep and abiding interests um, in Taiwan, and many other countries do too. Um, and so that's why I think if more countries get involved in efforts to try and strengthen deterrence, and if we have more credible deterrence, that is credible threats and credible assurance, uh, then we can we can continue to kick the can down the road. Um, but that's the best we can do. This is a problem we can manage. I don't think we, we can solve it. Maybe, Ani, it's worth for the audience taking a moment to, um, to summarize why this is so strategically important uh, for the US and why there is such robust 
congressional and growing public support for um, opposing uh, you know an attack on, on Taiwan. I mean, what what's at stake for the U.S.? I think that's worth. And, and then maybe I'll ask you what's at stake for Australia. If you're, if you're I'm going to let shot. you answer that question. <laughs> I have to live here. You get to go home. <laughs> Uh, well, for the United States, um, and Taiwan was important even before it was a democracy, but of course it's now even more important that it's democracy. Um, and Taiwan became a democracy. You know, I lived there in um, for a, a couple of years, 1979, 1980. Uh, martial law was in place. Um, uh, when I arrived, we'd just broken diplomatic ties with, with Taiwan. Uh, it, it was not a very good time. Uh, but uh, even then, we thought Taiwan was important to the United States with a long history, of course, of uh, supporting um, Taiwan, very close ties with its people. Uh, but the fact that now Taiwan is a very robust democracy and the only sort of um, ethnic um, Chinese democracy that is a model for an alternative form of government, I think, uh, for China is important. Um, but I, I also think it's um, extremely important. I'm sure you would agree that we that the United States um, um, take into account the interests of uh, of its allies, and particularly Japan. And if the United States were not to come to the defense of Taiwan or attack, I think our credibility in the region, not only with, with Japan, um, uh, would be severely damaged. And people often say Japan might go nuclear. Um, maybe South Korea would lose confidence that we would defend them if North Korea attacked. So the um, the image and the credibility of the United States, our position as leader in in the Indo-Pacific, just I, I think would be um, irreparably uh, damaged. I was saying earlier, it's hard to imagine uh, looking at the PLA's exercises and preparations. It's hard to imagine if they go for the the big one. You know the decapitation full attack. It's hard to imagine them trying to do that without going after U.S. bases and Japanese. Absolutely, so very very close. Yes, yeah, and and I think Japan now assumes that as well. <laughs> they have and the to. economics as well. and and the economics. I mean, obviously, there's um, the, we, we've now all become uh, more aware of the crucial role that Taiwan plays in supply chains and especially in semiconductors. They produce 92% of the most advanced semiconductors and I think about 60% of all of the semiconductors, uh, but they, they have this um, unique ecosystem, and the fabs that TSMC um, has set up in, in, in Taiwan. The, the world is, is so dependent on, on, on their capabilities. So their their crucial importance in supply chains, I think, is really important as well. So the 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 big dangerous scenario would be um, would be an assault not just on Taiwan but the U.S. alliance system in yes. this region, and therefore the entire um, system of, uh, of of collective security and mutual security, including transatlantic NATO. Are the Europeans more alive to this? We'll come back to Australia in a sec, but are the Europeans more alive to this challenge you find? Because the German Marshall Fund, of course, um, its first name is German. So obviously you're involved in a lot of, the big Asia program you run, but involved in a lot of transatlantic dialogues. Are you finding that European counterparts are more and more focused on this problem? The Taiwan problem specifically? I, I was just in Brussels a week ago um, and talked to uh, people in the EU, also went out to NATO. Um, and, and talked with folks there. And th there's growing concern about uh, Taiwan. I think there is a recognition that 
um, especially after Ukraine, that um, the unthinkable could happen um, and that the impact of any major conflict um, in, in the Indo-Pacific uh, would inevitably affect Europe. And, and it's the economic um, impact, of course, first and foremost, uh, but also the notion that if China ever used force, which it hasn't done so since 1979, that um, it it might find that using force is a tool that they want to use again. Um, and so it could lead to other, other wars. Um, it could lead to a great deal of instability um, and uh, would just, I think, create chaos um, in, in the world in a way that they want to see preservation of stability. They want Ukraine to exist as a, an independent sovereign state and, and to have NATO um, defending Europe. They're very worried about the potential if particularly if there's a crisis in the Taiwan Strait that the United States would pull its forces out um, in order to fight that war. And they would have to backfill in Europe. They don't have the capability to do that today. It's, it is significant that uh, the Australian, Japanese, Korean, um, uh, New Zealand, I think I forgot, uh, it's AP4, I think it was New Zealand, mm -hmm. uh, went to the NATO summit. That was not just about Ukraine, right? It was also about this region. Yeah, that was the Madrid summit. Yes, the Madrid summit, right. Thank you. Yeah, um, and um, that was also about this region, right? Major dem democracies in this region worry about Ukraine in part because they don't want a precedent that Absolutely. aggression in this region, and they want logically European support. The way they're showing support. Yeah, the connections are really growing between yeah. Europe and our allies in the Indo-Pacific. Um, let's take some more questions in, in the audience. Yes, sir. Up, up front, you need yeah the mic. So we we have an online audience, so they will want to hear your question too. So can I ask, oh, if Taiwan is so serious about this defense, why does it spend such a low percentage of GDP on defense as compared with South Korea or Israel? So. Taiwan's defense spending had been as a percentage of GDP as low as I think it fell to 1.9% of GDP. It's now up to 2.4. So the, the trajectory is clearly in the right direction. And this is a result of, of President Tsai Ing-wen's policies and really encouraging more spending on defense. But as I understand it, the root of this problem lies in um, Taiwan's tax system. It's very low. The amount of revenue that they collect is incredibly low. So, and it, it's corporate taxes, it's individual taxes. And so you've got a fairly small pie and it's very difficult to just take money away from obviously other parts of the budget and give it to defense. So what they end up doing, they have a special budget that they use to supplement the purchases of uh, weapons that they make from the United States. And I forget the amount of the recent purchase that was, but it's a fairly significant special budget. Uh, but it's very difficult for any president, I think, to really increase taxes, I think, but that's really where the root of it lies. Both the DPP and the KMT set a goal of spending 3% of GDP on defense, but they are not there. And I don't know if they will ever get there. Yes, sir. Yeah, I, we'll get to both of you. So okay. whoever wants to go first. Um, thank you. Uh, so I would like to ask a question regarding effective messaging and signaling. 
Um, when we talk about, for example, uh, the 2027 goal, for example, uh, between ourselves, sometimes there is some, let's say, pushback in regards to say, well, they say that in the Congress's work report, they say that um, publicly, uh, but we should be watching, quote unquote, what they do and what their behavior is rather than listening to what they say. Otherwise, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. The thinking, I suppose, is that same logic of listening to what, uh, observing what people do rather than what people say applies to China observing the rest of the world as well. And I, based on observations of interlocutors in China, it's not necessarily a given that they understand our messaging, our signaling as we would like to communicate them. I was just wondering if you had any opinion on what would be a more effective way of communicating uh, our will and our desire to see you know, peace in the Taiwanese Strait and continued status of Taiwan as a, as a in <clears throat> as it currently is, and how to ensure that that message is received appropriately and more importantly believed by senior leadership in China. You say we, you mean? Yeah, who's the we? You mean the U.S. Or, the Australia US or, the, or Australia or the Australia? Okay. Well, I think that. This is a very important question when you talk about messaging, but I would say actions matter and and rhetoric matters too. And I would like to see the United States be more consistent in both its rhetoric and and its act actions. So you know, if we say that we really would accept any outcome that is peacefully negotiated between the two sides of the strait, um, I think that that that's something that that we ought to be consistent about. Leaving the door open for any kind of possible outcome, not closing the door on unification, I think should be our policy and also Taiwan's policy. Um, if we close that door and, and say there's absolutely no scenario in which we will ever accept any kind of unification, um, I think that makes use of force more likely. So I think that's an example where we should be consistent in terms of our, our messaging and our actions um, and, and our rhetoric. Um, and, and then, as I mentioned you know, earlier, I don't think that our president should be signaling that we should actually leave it up to Taiwan to decide whether it's um, going to be an independent uh, sovereign state. We know that Taiwan calls itself and considers itself an independent sovereign state. But our position long long has been, although we don't talk about this very much publicly, at least officials don't, is that this issue of sovereignty remains unsettled. Um, and it, it, it's something left to be decided. So if it's left to be decided and we don't consider Taiwan an independent sovereign state, then actually self-determination shouldn't apply. Um, and, and so it's, it's to, to be consistent, we should not be saying, this is really up to them to decide. What we used to say publicly and with our inside voice in, in the U.S. government for decades and decades was it, it, the will of both people on both sides of the street, right? So basically, um, the president changed that a bit when he just talked about the will of the people on Taiwan. So under President Clinton, um, we said that the outcome be, has to be accepted by the people of Taiwan. And then as you know, when President Bush came in, he changed that to the outcome has to be accepted by the people on both sides of the strait. The Biden administration has moved that back. Yeah, yes. interesting. 
So it's challenging. It's a very good question. I mean, it's tough because um, you have to get the president to say the right thing. Which having staff the president is not always easy. You have domestic politics. I mean, Republicans in the House will um, be poised. Yes, uh, and this is weakness. a very good point. And because, in Taiwan as well, when you're 30% um, right. on independence. Prior to um, the Trump administration, you know, we never had, well, it's actually after the Trump administration, Mike Pompeo going out to Taiwan and saying, we, we should recognize Taiwan um, as an independent sovereign state. So that has become a, a, a real possibility in the minds of the Chinese, whereas previously they thought the the possibility that the United States would ever recognize Taiwan was, was virtually non-existent. And now it seems quite realistic. The Republicans are trying to outdo each other um, in how supportive they are of Taiwan and how critical right. they are of China. So the next speaker of the house has said, McCarthy, he is going to visit Taiwan. And that will likely uh, provoke, I think, a very strong reaction from China. Uh, and that that then increases the spiraling of, of tensions. So it's really, really quite and worse. And your politics and the vice president, who we both met, um, is very um, attuned to the base of the, the, pan, the deep green DPP base, political base, which wants independence. Um, and then, of course, China has politics. So you don't see them right. as openly. Absolutely. And, um, and the signaling from the from the Taiwan from the Taiwan Affairs uh, Office or from from Zhongnanhai or from the leadership is often not about us at all. It's often internal, right? Yes. So this it's a really yeah. good question, and it's it's important. If you could be king and be in charge, it'd be easy. But there are many actors in this. Um, <laughs> the gentleman next to you had a question. Uh, yeah, um, I feel what China wants is to start this uh, independence of this identity of Taiwan. That reminds me about Western Australia and like what they want always wanted to be separated from Australia, and then what is yeah, what if the, I'm just have a hypothesis, like what if this identity of Taiwan deconstructed into like the People's Republic of Taipei and then they declare independence, then what can China do? Like, They can attack. Yeah. And becomes like multiple uh, states in Taiwan Island. Then. Oh, you're saying if there was a, if there were. So like, Taiwan, uh, Taipei, Taizong, Kaohsiung, they mm -hmm. all declared independence. Oh, I see. And then oh, become different states. Individually? Individually, like. I, yeah, I've never heard that before. I just um, Yes, don't, okay. don't give them the ideas. Yeah, um, there, there's an interesting idea. And then all form an alliance with each other. Yeah. But I have, I have to say that um, I could be wrong about this, but my sense is that um, there's a majority of people in Taiwan who I said earlier, a lot of people say they would like to keep the status quo. And I think that's because they understand that actually declaring independence could really bring an, an attack and, and they would lose everything that they have. And so even though they want to be independent, um, they're willing to sort of postpone this until a day when they will be able to achieve it. And for the time being, just try to protect their autonomy and their freedoms. So I think, at least I hope, that that kind of thinking will prevent Taiwan from declaring independence. When I was there in March, um, TV, by the way, the TV stations were wall-to-wall -wall coverage. And they had yeah. reporters showing, um, you know, 
town halls or, or things blown up in Kherson or Mariupol or whatever. And then they would say, this is the same building in New Taipei City or Kaohsiung. Um, yeah, it was, wow. and, and it, until you said this, it occurred to me that, you know, Ukraine could also cause some pause among people on Taiwan about, you know, it's 30% it, in the poll would like independence, but- um, At what cost? At what cost? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Uh, we have time for other questions. Yes, sir, in the front. Spoke a little bit about disinformation, and I just wanted to talk about TikTok, which has a very interesting corporate structure, which effectively makes it under the control of China. And it's a really powerful, um, formidable platform for you know spreading memes and you know essentially using a powerful algorithm to push ideas to people. And TikTok has. Um, essentially become the most powerful microphone across all of the content platforms, TikTok and YouTube, but really TikTok. So the question is, should there be more of a foreign policy from the United States and Australia about TikTok? I mean, this was a little bit of a missed opportunity to intervene before, you know, when, when TikTok was looking for corporate support. But, but now that we're here and TikTok has sort of become the dominant platform very easily, you know, China could push out a narrative to change people's attitudes towards, you know, Taiwan or China or whatever. Should there be foreign policy, you know, on, on TikTok and what, what might that look like? You saw the letter in the Wall Street, was in the Wall Street Journal from Senator Rubio and others. Um, oh, oh, it was just, a, you might've been in the air, but just a few days ago, um, making this point and calling for the U.S. to ban TikTok. The Republican. If you have a, yeah. by the way, if you, if you have a teenage kid like I do, you are definitely for banning TikTok. <laughs> Quite apart from the geopolitics, but but you know you have very serious uh, bipartisan group of senators saying this is not acceptable. Well, the problems don't end at TikTok, and of course, if you're looking at disinformation aimed at Taiwan, um, they have this um, uh, social media called the Line, which is really popular there, uh, and uh, apparently there's quite a bit of disinformation um, there. There's um, the disinformation uh, problem, as I understand, is it doesn't only come from China. There's actually some domestic sources of disinformation. It's a very complicated media environment. Um, and I'm, I'm really very supportive of the ways in which Taiwan has dealt with this. And I'll come back to the TikTok because it's, it's different than banning um, social media or even uh, pulling down uh, these um, postings that contain disinformation because they're very sensitive to being accused of limiting freedom of speech. And so what they do is they identify a, a posting when it's reported to them. There's civil society that is engaged in this as well, but um, then there's also the digital minister, Audrey Tang, uh, who is... Just, I mean, she's so pro. She used to be a hacker. Um, and she's <laughs> Taiwan's digital minister. And frankly, I think um, uh, home affairs here, um, US government, see, see what she has done is actually pathbreaking, right? And yes, countering it, it really is. So instead of pulling the, down these kinds of these disinformations that they, they will, they have a COFAX is one of the um, civil society efforts. And so they will post uh, the, the, the truth and say, this is incorrect, this is, this is the real story. And she also has the strategy of responding to rumor with humor. 
So she'll create another meme that is funny and get people to laugh about the disinformation. And this has really worked in Taiwan. Now, I don't know whether it would work everywhere. I mean, you have to have a sort of certain kind of culture. But our first inclination, right, is ban it. <laughs> and I don't know if that's the right thing. So I don't know if Marco Rubio really is on the right path here. And well, TikTok idea, has become idea, so popular yeah. that I don't think we could just ban it. At this yeah, the point. concern that Senator Rubio and others expressed was all the data. Uh, right. That that would go into the AI Chinese Communist Party from all the users. I don't know. The the, um, the, the, the Audrey Tang, this minister that Bonnie talks about, is really interesting. And, and just for context, for those who don't know it, it was before the um, election in Taiwan when there was uh, major interference from the mainland, very similar to what um, Russia did in the U.S. election or other Western elections. But this time it was Chinese language, so. Um, it, 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 it was the first real case, I think, of an expansive, extensive effort by Beijing to interfere in the election of social media. And Audrey Tang and the, the government in Taipei responded, as you heard, really in agile, skillful, humorous ways to counter it. You know, it, was, it, was, it was impressive. Uh, I think we have time for one more question before we wrap up. Yes, ma'am, in the back. Thank you so much. Um, you mentioned about if Australia were to help Taiwan, so one way is to develop a trade relationship with Taiwan. Now, um, recently, Albanese met with um, Xi Jinping, I think it's today or yesterday. Um, and that message to me feels like um, the Albanese government is trying to push a, not necessarily a good relationship with China, but at least a stable, um, normalized um, bilateral relationship with China. If Australia is going to take a proactive approach um, for the Taiwan Strait issue, what does that mean for Sino-Australia relationship and how does that align with Australia's national interest? And that of course is something that the current government would I'm sure consider as to whether or not engaging in trade talks with Taiwan is going to help or harm their their efforts um, with China and, and every government, you know, needs to decide for themselves what is going to give them leverage or what is going to set back their other objectives. Um, it, it's not easy, but um, I mean, currently, I think China has a very strong interest in engaging with um, the government here and in, in part because China's bid, its interest in joining CPTPP, Australia's support is, is essential. And if the Chinese aren't going to even restore normal consultations and dialogue, why, why should Australia have an interest in supporting China's ambitions to be part of CPTPP? So you know, every country has different sources of leverage. You have to be careful how you use them. Uh, but I don't think that um, supporting trade talks with Taiwan myself, um, my view is that this should not be seen um, by China as very threatening to its interests because Taiwan is a member of the WTO as a customs territory. Uh, it has the right um, legally to sign trade agreements with other countries. And when New Zealand and Singapore signed its trade agreements with Taiwan, um, they did it in close consultation with Beijing um, and ensured that they were using the right name 
Um, and so Australia can do that also, as can the United States or Japan. And, and again, you provide that assurance. You say, we are going to do this legally in a way that will be consistent with Taiwan's role in the WTO. Um, and that this is not necessarily something that should be seen as threatening. Now, Beijing won't like it. But frankly, I think um, you know a decision to like supply weapons to to Taiwan would be a totally yeah. other um, kettle of fish, as we say. Um, I think that you know trade is something that um, China really should not object about. If they say that they care about winning the hearts and minds of the people of Taiwan, they shouldn't try to isolate them so much economically and di diplomatically. What will be important, and what I think governments are realizing, and one reason you're hearing so much from European capitals that um, the Australian government, Australian people are so focused on this is um, you don't want to be all alone. If, 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 you, you want know, political cover. You want a political cover. You want to coordinate. You want, you know, Australia is going to want Canada, maybe France, others doing the same thing. And so coordinating across not just the Pacific, but the Atlantic, with major democracies and economic powers, and even smaller ones, um, it's going to be really, really important. Um, whether it's these kinds of trade discussions proactively with Taiwan or responding to coercive pressure. You know, Korea got embargoed and went alone, uh, uh, you know, as, you, as you know well. Um, uh, Australia got embargoed and stood firm. Um, and um, increasingly, a topic of discussion among U.S., Japan, Australia, Korea can't is is how do we resist economic coercion together? Because the the thinking five or six or seven years ago was we're better off doing this on our own. If we work with other countries, it will upset Beijing and make it worse. I don't think that's the thinking anymore. I think I think that, that just as you saw these four leaders go to the NATO summit from Asia, I think there's a growing recognition we're going to have to all of us coordinate so we have cover, <laughs> so that we that we have mutual support, try to make progress with Beijing, but. Don't be intimidated. Oh. You know. um, Bonnie, it's been great having you. Thank you very, very much. Really interesting questions. They were all good questions. Um, and um, very, very glad you could come here to the US Study Center and the University of Sydney. When do you go home? Well, I go to Taiwan. Are you going to Taiwan next? From okay. here, all right, that's um, right. In a week. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I go to India. So I'm on this very long trip. I've done, I've done the Taipei <laughs> Delhi flight. A lot of software engineers. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Thank great. you for spending your Friday evening with us. Yeah, it's all um, it's all really very very interesting stuff, Bonnie, and we're all much smarter for your presence. Thank you. Thank you.